In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you do a Google search for the word paradise, what do you suppose you will find? Well, you may see plenty of photos of warm, inviting, tropical, exotic destinations. Or you may find links to various businesses that specialize in offering all the pleasures of life. Places like Paradise Winery, Paradise Pizza, Paradise Casino. By the way, these are all real places. At any rate, what, you're, what you'll certainly discover is that our earthly and hedonistic imagination they really have a hard time envisioning paradise as anything other than a destination that is totally 100% devoted to maximizing human happiness. But that idea of paradise is such a gross distortion of the way that scriptures actually speak of paradise, especially about the first paradise, that garden of the Lord called Eden. What exactly was paradise? What was forfeited when Adam sinned and paradise was lost? Well, one of the first things that we find in the biblical record is that God created paradise to be a place of unbroken fellowship and communion with his creatures as a place where man could enjoy the gift of God's presence. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, we read that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. A couple things to note here. God created Eden to be a gift for Adam. The text says that first Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground, and then, after creating, creating Adam, God creates a paradise for him to live in. God takes the man from the place that he was created and he graciously places him into this perfect and life-giving paradise. God builds Adam a home, in essence, where he will enjoy unbroken fellowship with God. God doesn't hide himself from Adam, but God creates paradise to be a place where Adam will experience God's continual, uninterrupted presence. We see this most clearly in the fact that God speaks to Adam. God gives Adam his word. And we know that wherever, whenever the word of God is found and heard, there God is truly present. In Eden, God blesses Adam. He blesses him with the gift of vocation. God makes Adam the ruler over his entire royal garden. He is given the trees for food. He is given dominion over all the animals. We see this in the fact that Adam names all the animals. God even blesses Adam with the gift of companionship. Adam will not have to keep and guard 
this paradise alone. God creates a woman from Adam's side, and he brings her to the man in order to be his intimate and consummate helper, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. In all this, we see that the first paradise was far from this pagan idea of just a pleasure garden. While Eden was indeed full of delights, what made it a paradise was the unbroken communion and fellowship that Adam shared with God, his creator, and with Eve, his fellow creature. In Eden, there was no need to hide from God or from one another. Paradise was a place where everything was working in harmony exactly as God had designed and intended it to do, where man's daily existence was a reminder of God's presence and God's blessing. But, as we know, when the man trusts the word of the serpent over the word of God, he forfeits his right to rule over paradise. Adam abdicates his throne. He throws his good gifts away. He destroys the home that God has built for him. And as a result, Adam becomes alienated from God and from his fellow creatures. His peace with God has now been replaced by shame and fear and a desire to run. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice that the first remedy, the very first thing that Adam does after he realizes his sinful condition is he tries to rely upon his own works. His first instinct is to make something, to do something that will cover his sin and disguise the source of his shame. Why? Well, because the man now stands alienated from God. He no longer trusts that God will be good or gracious or merciful. This is even more clearly seen when Adam hears the sound of God walking through the garden and tries to conceal himself using the very trees that God had originally created for his nourishment. The man uses the good gifts of the Creator to flee in terror from his Creator. God's speaking presence, which had once been a blessing to Adam, now strikes his ears as a threat. But the man, no matter how hard he tries, cannot escape the penalty of his sin by hiding. As a result of the rebellion, God declares that access to this first paradise is irrevocably lost. The harmony of the created order is destroyed. The joy of marriage and family will now become an experience full of sorrow and striving. The good gift of work, of vocation, will now be marred by futility and scarcity. Adam is deposed from his position of stewardship and driven out of God's royal garden as an exile, sent back to the very dust from which he was taken. 
Now each step away from Eden will be a sorrowful reminder of the separation that sin has put between the man and the Lord. The cherubim standing guard at the only gate to Eden are a menacing sign to Adam that the way to the first paradise has been closed to him forever. I wonder, I wonder what it was like on that first evening for Adam and Eve. Perhaps as they were walking eastward, looking for a place to shelter for the night, they turned around long enough to catch the last rays of the sun's light dipping beneath the western horizon. Perhaps catching one last glimpse of that tree of life that God had planted in the very center of the garden. The tree that they would never have the right to eat from again. As the darkness swallowed them up, it's not hard to imagine that Adam and Eve were weeping bitter tears as they faced their first night alone in a strange place as exiles upon the earth, hanging their heads in shame and crying to one another, what have we done? What have we done? Have you been there? Do you know what it's like to look back on your life and see nothing but a trail of destruction? Do you know what it's like to feel so ashamed of the sins in your life that you even try to hide them from God? To lay awake in the darkness of night and to ask yourself, what have I done? What have I done? When Adam lost paradise, so did we. In Adam's fall, we also fell. In Adam's sin, we too were made sinners. We too roam the earth as exiles. We no longer fear, love, or trust God. We despise his word. We disobey. We fear his punishment. And so we try to cover our sins by the works of our own hands. We attempt to hide ourselves from his presence by turning his good gifts into idols, looking to them for protection. When confronted by God's word, we either play the victim and accuse God of being unjust for letting this stuff happen to us, or we just yield to despair when we realize that we can't do enough to atone for the damage that our sin has caused. This is what it means to lose paradise. To be cut off from the source of life is to be dead. To be exiled from paradise is to be in hell. And yet, even though the way back into that first paradise was closed, God's fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, His love for us, was by no means exhausted. 
The man and the woman are not sent out of the garden empty-handed. They are given a promise. A promise that one day, God's curse will be swallowed up by his word of blessing. That alienation from God is not to be their final sentence. Though the way back into Eden remains shut, God promises them that one day, the doors to a better paradise will be open wide. When God curses the serpent, he says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, God promises the birth of a second Adam, a faithful Adam who will undo the transgression of the first. This is a clear prophecy that points to Jesus Christ, the offspring of Mary. In our gospel reading this morning, we see this prophecy being fulfilled as Christ is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he resists each and every temptation that Satan throws at him. Whereas the first Adam transgressed by believing Satan's lies, Christ shows that he is the faithful Adam when he disarms Satan over and over with the words, it is written, it is written, it is written. But we see this prophecy fulfilled most fully, most clearly at the cross where Christ hangs on the tree of death in Adam's place. He shares in the shame of Adam's nakedness. Only for Christ, there's no hiding. He is displayed as a public spectacle, enduring the humiliation in all of its fullness that Adam tried so desperately to hide himself from. At the cross, Christ shares in Adam's exile. He tastes the abject misery of being banished from God's presence. In a mystery known only to God, Christ even suffers the agony and the torments of hell as he hangs there on the cross and cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? And yet, even as we stand there with Adam and gaze with sorrow, at what our sins have earned, we also witness at the same time God's inexhaustible mercy at work. As we look upon this horrific spectacle, we also begin to see something incredibly wonderful, something incredibly beautiful. Because before our very eyes, the tree of death that Christ is hanging from begins to transform into a tree of life. The wounds on his body that were put there as the fruit of sin now become for us a life-giving food, a medicine that gives immortality and healing. The hard and stony ground that was sprinkled with the blood and water that gush out of Christ's side now begins to soften and begins to bring forth new life, spreading its growth 
as far as the curse is found. And then it dawns on us. As we stand with Adam at the foot of this tree, we realize where we are. We are standing there in a new paradise. Christ has taken us out of the dust of our exile, and he's placed us into the very heart of his kingdom. We look down and we see that the shame of our nakedness has been covered by a robe dipped in his blood. The guilt of our transgression has been atoned for. The fear of God's punishment has given way to peace in God's presence. In in paradise, Christ nourishes us from his life-giving tree with the fruits of his righteousness. He quenches our thirst with the waters of life that flow through its midst. In this paradise, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. By his death and resurrection, Christ has redeemed us from the curse that plagues all who share in Adam's fallen and sinful nature. He has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, and he's placed us into his wonderful kingdom of light, a paradise that will never again be corrupted by the stain of sin. And yet, as we know, for now, this is something that we experience only by means of faith and not by means of our senses. In our daily life, we understand that we still wrestle with the feeble weaknesses of our flesh. As we make our pilgrim journey, we still have to fight those feelings of alienation and loneliness. And so, until the day that we can finally see paradise with our eyes, Christ has given us a foretaste of this paradise right here within the walls of his church. As he first formed Adam from the dust and brought him into the garden, so God forms us in the waters of our baptism. He makes us new creations, and then he places us into the very midst of his church, where he guards us by his spirit, and where he keeps us through the power of his wonderful words and promises. He gives us the continuous gift of his presence through the preaching of his word. He feeds us from the tree of life with the fruit of Christ's body and of his blood. He gives us fellowship with one another. He blesses us with the gift of vocation. By his spirit, he gives each of us various gifts to be used for the building up of the whole church. He even makes us ambassadors. Ambassadors who will carry this word of reconciliation, this gospel to those who are still outside the gates of paradise, to those who are still alienated from God, 
and still held captive by the lies of the devil, so that they might too be rescued from sin and brought into the church to walk in newness of life with Christ in this new paradise. In the beginning, Adam sinned, and the gates to the first paradise were closed to him forever. But now, thanks be to God, Christ, our second Adam, has caused a new paradise to spring up around his life-giving tree. And it's from this tree that Christ now invites you to take and to eat so that you might live forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.